message to women. You deserve better than to be called pretty. You deserve better Thank than you to for get tuning in to The Queer Truth, a podcast that takes on a variety of topics from pop culture to everyday life. I'm Chantel C. You can call me CC, and I'm joined by my partner in organizing, Denise. Hello. It's been a minute. Yeah, I know. Who are you? What you? What you what's your name? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> New number. Who did? Look, you were traveling <laughs> all over the world, and then I did a little bit of travel, and now we're back. We're back. We're back, racing towards our 100th episode, if you could believe it. Oh my goodness. So much has happened. I've actually been happy that we've been on break because I wouldn't have had the heart to talk about the things. Like, what's going on, Nikki? I mean, have you lost your mind? First of all, leave. Look, I need for her to get it together and I need for her to leave Cardi alone and leave leave culture out your mouth. Don't talk about culture (laughs) because... I like both of y'all, and I need for you to do better. All kinds of things happen. You know what happened this week, though? What Girl, so now, now Suge Knight's son talking about Tupac in Malaysia. Malaysia. No, right. we all know he in Cuba with his godmama. <laughs> we all know he is in Cuba with his godmama. This man said he is in Malaysia, and he don't care what the Illuminati say. He gonna put it out Illuminati. there. Yeah, he said the Illuminati gonna come for him, but he ain't going nowhere. Let me tell you something. If Tupac was alive, he would be in your face right now. <laughs> he, he's no, not a no. like, let me duck and be whatever. Nah, he yes, would be he in is. your face. He was political. His godmother snapped him up and said, look, sit your ass down here in Cuba. You're going to have a good life. You're going to live a long life. <laughs> nah, I can't see. I, 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 I can't see. Uh, nah, he's he's not going to listen to Tonto like that. <laughs> Not even in the afterlife. Like, if, <laughs> if, if Tupac could haunt us, <laughs> that's what he would be doing right now. Oh, man. Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive, please. But obviously, like, kind of the fun news in pop culture this week is Sunday. We have the season finale of season three of Insecure. This was an interesting season. I feel like, uh, you know, after each uh, episode, Issa Rae sits down and does what she calls a wind down. And after the season finale, she did the wind down with Molly, the person who plays Molly, Yvonne Orji, and Issa Rae. They get along very well. They seem to be very close in real life. And Issa said, this is kind of like the bridge season. And that felt appropriate. She was like, this is the season that builds to something else. So it is good that they're coming back for a season four. But first of all, I'd like to point out that we only get eight episodes. What's that about? Yeah, that's about shortchanging. That's a third of a full season of something mm-hmm. on one of the major broadcasters. I think mm-hmm. I think How to Get Away with Murder is 18 episodes. I think Scandal or like Grey's Anatomy is like 23, 24 episodes. But that might be Issa's choice. I don't know. I haven't read up on that. I remember Michael Cole was like, I'm writing all this stuff myself. I'm going to need some time. Yeah. Remember Chewing Gum. Yeah. So who knows? No, Issa doesn't write it alone. She has a writing room. But her and one other person did write this last episode. And what I feel like, um, I felt like the season felt disappointing to some people because there wasn't like some big climax or some, there was drama. There's always drama, but there wasn't like big drama. And I try to remind people that, you know, we, we've gotten used to drama. Like 
because of things like how to get away with murder and scandal where just about every episode like somebody's getting shot somebody getting discussed like you know and in and insecure we just have life just like white folks have friends or white folks Mm -hmm. have what seinfeld like you just Mm -hmm. have life yes can we just have that sometimes because sometimes we just not in the struggle like we don't wake up and brush our teeth like oh (laughs) take down the system like i mean (laughs) sometimes we just like ooh, am i gonna get that call back Mm -hmm. well this this season totally gave us um insight into how all of these women are a part of the system let's begin with yvonne orgy's character molly molly Mm -hmm. at the end of last season made the decision that she was going to move to a new firm she chose the black firm right and she was thrilled about being able to work at an all-black law firm she then gets there and i don't know that she i feel like molly has had the least amount of growth among all the characters since first season (laughs) But you know, but she's too busy to have growth. She got 12 months. Okay. <laughs> you know, but she so, works for 70 hours a week. It's such an interesting contrast because she gives Issa like really good advice and like calls mm-hmm. Issa on her shit and vice versa, right? Issa calls her on her shit, mm-hmm. which she definitely did at the end of the season. But but just like the self reflection is really lacking in. Uh... Probably <laughs> I'm glad you know. So, <laughs> I'm glad you know. We like Yoda. <laughs> on advice and like Luke on execution. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really because, you know, she was hating on, she wanted to be at this black law firm that she was hating on it because things were done differently mm-hmm. and she felt like it was old fashioned and why can't they, bah, bah, bah. right? And so, but what really showed out this season with Molly was one, Asian Andrew. Molly has so many issues, it is unbelievable. First of all, Molly didn't want to date Asian Andrew, even though he is fine and has beautiful hair, because she said she knows she wants to end with a black man. Oh, but that's real. That's struggle. It's, real. Oh, it's very, black very real. It's very, very real. Racial loyalty when it comes to romance of any other group of people, period, point blank. So I know. And some people and some people were like, oh, well, you know, shout out to her for not wasting his time. Um, no. Who said you got a merry old dude? Y'all can have fun together. He was nice. He can take you on some dates. He can remind you what it's like to uh, feel. He come back. Oh, he's back. He's back. At the, you know, he listened to her conversation at the end of, or to her apology at the end of the the episode. So I'm sure Asian Andrew will be going somewhere with that. If she drops him again, I'm going to be mad because Asian Andrew, like I said, is fine. Well, if she drops him being Asian. I mean, she might, you know. We'll see what happens next season. But (laughs) but I I have very little faith in Molly because they brought back somebody at the end of this episode who we might recall told her about an experience of his sleeping with a man. And... And she was like, what? Oh, so you're gay. So they let us believe when she runs into him in the line, they let us believe for a split second that he just might be gay. And she freaked out. She couldn't even finish the conversation with him. She ran back. It was so urgent. She had to go back and run and tell Issa, guess what, though? He's not gay. That was his brother. And he dating a super chocolate, fine black woman who all came over to to say goodbye to them at the end of the film. And I was like, see, this is where we see that Molly hasn't grown at all. Molly out here judging everybody. She got mad at Asian Andrew when he laughed at her for dating a married dude. (laughs) 
she runs into the best person she's dated on the show thus far. Assumes he's gay because he's being nice to a brother who happens to actually be his brother. And then is looking like, why do you need to go run and tell Issa that he's gay? Like, why is that so urgent? Why? Well, why? because heterosexual women, you know, uphold homophobia on so many levels, right? Like, what does it mean for them? Yeah, there's something there's something about like hetero insecurity around dating bi people uh and 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 queer people that you know i think that the show captures very well indeed but i was just like damn i mean jared is is i don't even know if jared identified as bisexual he just said that he had a thing with a man once right he let a man go down on him or something he said like that's not that deep molly let's move on nope and then jared comes up with his brother and they both have their fine girlfriends on their arms and i was like and how do you look now molly crazy you look crazy that's how you look that's how you look because two black men were being comfortable with each other. And one was like, can you get me a drink? All of a sudden you have assumed that he is gay. Wow. Hegedar broke. Hegedar <laughs> is very, very, very broke. So yeah, I'm a little hard on Molly this season. I'm hard on her every season, but this well, season, I, mean, like, I was just Ethan's like hard on her. Remember <clears throat> season one when she said she had a broken pussy. I mean, like, Hey, <laughs> <You know>? well, <laughs> But Issa has actually shown some growth in this season. I mean, she did some crazy stuff, too, where I was like, what's going on, Issa? I mean, we need to we need to think about the mental well-being. I'm not sure what's happening. But she did show growth. She got her credit together. She was able to buy some furniture. So someone tweeted, I think, you know, on the first season we saw, at the end of first season, we saw um, Issa sitting on a couch outside of her own apartment when Lawrence didn't come back for her. At the end of season two, we saw Issa sitting on... Daniel's couch and at the end of season three we see her sitting on her own couch so (laughs) so they're they're appreciating the couch um so there has been some growth there but I feel like for this season there was also some attention to what people complained about right so Lawrence wound up with the STI (gasps) shocking girl shocking after mm, because after they brought him on, after she kept that secret, and she did it so well, after he came back into the show, we saw what he had been up to, and it was no good. It was a lot of sexy time, and as everybody pointed out last season, that sexy time don't ever look like it's wrapped up. Well, guess what? He wound up with the... What did he have? Was it the clap? No, I think he had gonorrhea. That's just a temporary one. Yeah, it's a temporary one. So, you know, but... Also, they did us right because he called every woman he had slept with. And then actually he called one. And she was like, nigga, we just sleep together. Oops. What? <laughs> he was like, oh, what? we didn't, we didn't, we didn't. My bad. Okay. <laughs> but, but now you know. But now, now you know. <laughs> now you know. <laughs> and you know, Issa turned 30 on the last episode of this season. So we also have to remember that these people are young young and ambitious and it's called insecure exactly and we also need to remember that growth is not linear no it's it's not not a linear thing no it's not you know otherwise i wouldn't be sitting here at my big age (laughs) 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 but yeah growth is definitely not not linear well i'm looking forward to Issa standing on her own two feet and i hope she leaves nathan out in the cold because he does not deserve to come back into that bed you cannot 
ghost somebody for a whole month and then show back up with some foliage and think it's all good. That's not how that works. So please, if the listener, if the writers are listening, leave him out of next season as well as Drill, because I'm over him too. So, you know, it's October. What does October mean to you? Halloween, yes. pumpkin, pumpkin spice lattes, mm-hmm. uh, uggs, uh, uh, fall foliage. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, <laughs> what's the problem? No, that's all. That's all good. I mean, I love autumn. Uh-huh. It's my favorite time of year. Obs with Halloween and my birthday. Um, that wasn't really what I was going for. So October. <laughs> October in the UK is also Black History Month, which was, oh, snap. which only uh, came about about 30 years ago. And then I came across something that someone posted on Facebook where they were like, look what's going on in my borough. And now it is, has gained so much attention because it's official. The Guardian has written about it. Blavity has written about it. Oh, Wandsworth, which is a conservative borough in South London, which doesn't even sound right. It's like South London, conservative. How does that go together? But. Wandsworth, one of the conservative boroughs of South London, has decided that... You know how that... to do segregation in England. <laughs> they hook it up. Okay. So go ahead. Thank you. Let me... Yes. <laughs> they have decided that instead of Black History Month, they're going to do Diversity Month. And that is exactly what I saw on Facebook. So somebody was posting on Facebook about this thing happening at the library during Black History Month that was on the Polish. And they were like, um, unless I missed the memo... I'm pretty sure that's happening on the wrong dates. Nope. It is all on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw an Italian reading hour for the children. <laughs> Italians coming into Black History Month now. <laughs> well, in, in this particular borough, they're commemorating Indian, Polish, Spanish, Chinese, as well as African and Caribbean cultures. Well, I mean, like, this is this is what white supremacy does it evolves right like the more there's pushback to it the more it evolves and the, the the european version of that evolution at least of recent has been a kind of uh obtuse colorblindness right like so we just gonna pretend that you know all non-white cultures can fit into this one month and we're not we're gonna pretend that anti-black racism isn't something very specific and localized so what we're most gonna people do don't you talk about pretending most people don't even know that there's a word or or it, thought process around anti-black racism that is a very specific language that you do not find in the mainstream but there also is this kind of uh, from other uh, people of color, non-Black people of color, um, expectation that is extremely anti-Black, that Black people um, sort of be the mules of progress, right? Absolutely. So anytime Black people have a remedy, let's say, you know, we lobby, we do all the work, and we come up with Black History Month, and it's established, and it's official, and that's what's happening. That that now must become whatever they can use to you know, further, further, um, uh, for, for whatever community that they're from. And the thing is, is that what people don't understand about how blackness is, uh, used in a white supremacist hierarchy is that we're basically like the all boats rise type of, you know what I mean? Like if you put, <laughs> if you put your full weight into black progress, trust me, 
my Indian brothers and sisters or my Polish brothers and sisters, it's going to benefit you. Mm-hmm. We're, we're actually the, the last people to benefit from real progress mm-hmm. of Black people. Mm-hmm. The last ones. Everyone else benefits before us. You know, look at civil rights. You know, the, the, biggest, um, the biggest gains in affirmative action in the United States have been for white women. People don't know that. <laughs> so I think white women like, know that. A, Actually, more and more people know that today. Yeah. So, but you have a civil rights movement that is built off of, you know, injustices faced by black people that is powered by black people that, you know, benefits people that are non-black more than it benefits people that are actually black. And that happens across the board. That happens with Black History Month. There's no need to rename it. <laughs> Apparently there is. Um, it's it's interesting. Let me give you another example. So over the last few days, I was at a founders festival mm-hmm. in in Germany. And that's already difficult, right? So they they do everything in English in order to make it more uh, accessible, international. International. And they had Tarana Burke as the keynote on the first day, one of the keynotes on the first day. And when I saw her name, I was like, um, why is she on here? That was literally my first reaction. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go because she's on here. I want to see what she gets to say. Mm. So she opens her speech by saying, "How? raise your hand if you thought it was weird that I was on here. <laughs> so she already knew, right, that people were going to be questioning. The beauty of her speech was she, without forcing it, was able to to make the connection as a founder because that's what she is. She is the founder of the Me Too movement. And she explained so many lessons learned about the patience, the tenacity, the perseverance, what happens when it does blow up, right? And you have to make it, you have to switch your leadership styles. I'm using different words, but this is what she was explaining to us. And at the same time, she did not hold her tongue about what Me Too stands for, right? And she kept saying Black girls. She kept saying Black girls. She kept saying Black girls. And she said, you're not going to hear it anymore today. So I'm going to make sure I've said it enough. And she Mm -hmm. said, it's possible to center Black girls without excluding anyone else. Mm -hmm. She talked so much about it. And let me tell you, men were streaming out. Streaming (gasps) out. Tarana Burke, the founder of the Me Too movement, and it is Me Too time, right? And Mm -hmm. men are streaming out. Streaming out. And they use this app. They pull the (laughs) camera And they used, there was an app where we could like send our questions and then they were beamed on the stage. And thankfully we had a really good uh, facilitator who did not bother asking question by Mr. Anonymous. You are not an anonymous dude. We know you a white dude somewhere talking about what about the people what who are falsely accused? The question did not get asked though, thankfully. Yeah. Um, but that's what you, that, and then and the thing is, I was like, okay, maybe I'm seeing this wrong, but nope. Throughout the, throughout the days, what did I hear men say? Oh, I don't know why she was here. I don't know what the point was. It has nothing to do with what we're doing. And what did I hear women say? Oh, it was amazing. It was inspiring. It gave me courage. It was a, it was a gender line. It wasn't a race line. It was a gender line that I did not find one man who listened to her talk. There were plenty who didn't go because unfortunately it was like, you know, 11 a.m. on the first day, which was a Sunday. Yeah. 
But the people who listen to her talk, I didn't. I I personally, I'm not saying he didn't exist, but I personally did not find one man who understood the point. And so later on, and the theme of this festival was diversity. That was the theme. And later on, I went to uh, a stream of talks on negotiations because those are talks that I offer myself. And this man was asked specifically, what does a woman have to consider in negotiations? And he said, there's no difference. There's no difference. Mm -hmm. I see no difference between men and women. He had taught us some categories of negotiation. He said, there are women gamblers and there are men gamblers. There are women, blah, blah, blah. And there are men, blah, blah, blah. And he just continued on. He said, there's no difference. And I said, that wasn't the question. <laughs> the question wasn't well, what you know, see. The, 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 the answer is he don't know. Right. right. That, he of course. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's fine. And, and, and there's, but, there's something specifically triggering. And I'm sure that the, the majority of the conference was white, right? Of course. About white men um, being subjected to a, 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 not only an expert, but like a woman, uh, a black woman that's an expert. There's something that is so, um, I don't know, there's something about that that ruffles their feathers in a Joe Biden, Anita Hill type way, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because Anita was put together. She was ready for that moment. And Joe Biden wasn't having it. Yes, and but people I have also said that's that was her downfall, which we're not going to we wouldn't have time to <laughs> deconstruct right. all of that. But people said, you know, that was that was the difference. Christine Blasey Ford was showed vulnerability, and Anita Hill was put together, so well, it's easier Anita to Hill showed blackness. No, 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 about... no, no, no. We we don't have the time, and it's not what well, we're doing I, today. I, I to take, it's, but, we're, so we're I'm sure that was triggering. As, as absolutely, but the Me Too movement is a very good example of like black people black women being this all boats rise constituents exactly because like i said no woman and i'm again it doesn't mean that there weren't women present who felt differently but no woman i talked to no woman i heard no woman i saw on twitter was not feeling what she said Mm -hmm. so and then i went into another thing that was about oh we're gonna do this interactive workshop Mm -hmm. on diversity and i get in there and it's an escape game Mm. where you have a bunch of riddles that you have to figure out in order to escape and at the end it was so badly done and at the end i said this has nothing to do with diversity and they said yes it does because you had to work with other teams and you had to and i said no 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 boo that's called uh teamwork Collaboration. collaboration That has nothing to do with diversity. Yes, because you have diverse minds and you have to work with people from... I said, no, I didn't have to work with people from different backgrounds. I had no choice over the people who were put into this room. I had to work with people from different teams. Mm -hmm. And that has nothing to do with diversity. Mm -hmm. And I walked out. And I was just like, so really, we have a diversity-themed festival that is not actually ready for diversity. Not at all. Not at all. And and it helps you know, when they try to gamify this process or they try to um, sort of simplify race into being like teams or, you know, they, it just shows that they don't have uh, a fuller understanding of race, racial dynamics and diversity. Is it really understanding? Because diversity is like, you know, beyond race and sex and gender. Of course. It's like ability, age, and every speak. Other than the older white men for negotiations, most of the speakers were younger people. 
even even the startup pitch finale, there was one woman juror mm. from like but is, seven. But it's an it's an oversimplification because able-bodied people do not see themselves on an able-bodied team, but they still participate in uh, disabled uh, segregation and subjugation, right? Like so that still happens unintentionally or intentionally. Sure. So. It's, but we don't we don't like look at other able-bodied people and say we on this team together we gonna do this you know you see that dude with the wheelchair let's stare at him and point at him and make jokes like th- that doesn't happen even as a conscious thing and and those people aren't necessarily on a team to do that and those people may have uh, completely different backgrounds in other ways and and have different power dynamics between themselves so this idea that we're gonna now simplify it to a team. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Well, the thing is when, um, and this is what I'll leave you with. When I read, there was one email that I got and <laughs> some of the women laughed at me. They were like women that I met there. They were like, oh, oh CC, you're silly to have gotten your expectations up. I read this mm-hmm. email and it, it had all the right points, right? They had like childcare facilities. They had, da, da, da. it was just like a list of things, but it was very clear that it was gender diversity that they were targeting. That's the only diversity okay. you could read from that email on their mm. diversity themed founders festival. Mm. But even on gender diversity, they failed. So what does so that, that tell you? that was their focus and their focus failed and the whole purpose of the thing. Okay. Yeah. I'm, hey, hey, hey. Claiming home, woman of color in Europe. These are notes on the third annual Black Feminism, Womanism, and the Politics of Women of Color in Europe Symposium. Last Saturday in Berlin, the hashtag WOC Europe conference was held and brought together women from almost every country in Western Europe and boasted three tracks of presentations and workshops. The abundance was a bit unfair because each topic seemed genuinely interesting. While I found myself rooted in the main track, I often flitted to the other tracks, catching rays of brilliance wherever I went. I'll admit that I am biased. When I moved to Berlin in 2008, I felt like a pioneer. After the diverse cities I'd lived in before, Berlin was a shock. I gathered the phone numbers of every Black person I met on the street. And this was possible because we were so few. I was yelled at almost daily by Berliners that wanted to announce my blackness to me and anyone with an airshot. My daughter, who was a teen then, endured a crucible of verbal abuse. To think that years later that I would return to Berlin to witness a cornucopia of black feminist thought seemed unthinkable then. It was fitting that the conference started with Looking back, looking forward, a conversation with Karina Ogontoye. Karina Ogontoye is an Afro-German writer, historian, activist, and poet. She co-edited the book Faba Bekennen with Maya Aim and Dagmar Schultz. She founded Joliba Intercultural Network and co-founded a DEFRA, Afrodeutsche Frauen. Ogontoye was born in 1959 and gave some details about growing up in Germany after spending her early childhood in Nigeria. A generational divide was evident between her and her interviewer, Dominique Hanze, some around the somewhat esoteric question of, can a woman have it all? 
Ogontoye expressed that a pause in her activism is what made her motherhood as a lesbian possible. Hans still responded that one can be both a mother and an activist. One idea from the audience that resonated was that motherhood is a form of activism. I felt that the divergence in how both mothers, Hansel and Ogontoye, viewed who could claim the label of activists was reminiscent of my own shifts on the issue. Lately, I've been meditating on how feminized labor, like mothering, is devalued even by feminists, and how this has implication for feminists who are mothers, who may not see mothering as a crucial part of their activism. The conversation then shifted to the role of Audre Lorde in the Black German feminist movement. Audre Lorde is often cited as a catalyst towards a Black German movement and formalized identity. As Ogontoye explained, Lorde's effect and impact, the question from the audience that resonated so much that it got applause was, why do you think that white German women were more willing to listen to Audre Lorde than to Black German women? This spoke to the frustrations of many women of color in Europe that find their voices ignored by the white countrymen who undercut their own experience and expertise. Katharina Ogontoye remains a vibrant force and reminder that present-day activists are part of a historical continuum of a marginalized population that has not always even been recorded. Our mothers, ourselves, our children. Katarina Ogontoye said, my mother was a feminist who denied it and talked about the different treatment between her and her brother being an early radicalizing influence. Her mother made sure that she had as much opportunity as possible. The focus on the importance of practice superseding the claiming of labels would prove to be a common theme throughout the symposium. Quote, it's one thing to know these things in theory, but another to make it real. Katarina Ogantoye, The Politics of Home. I was particularly interested in staying with the track that explored the concept of home. As a transplant to Europe, I'm often looking for strategies that allow me to be rooted here while allowing for all of my identities and history. For people of corner born here, this desire is even more urgent. Non-white people in Europe are often assumed to be immigrants and not given the luxury and often birthright of belonging. To be racialized as black is to be excluded from the national narrative. Gabriella Beckles Raymond. In her talk, Home as a Site of Freedom and Resistance, Gabriella Beckles Raymond laid out in painful detail how the home is often delegated to the realm of the feminine, hidden and marginalized. Yet that home as a site in modern democratic ideology as an intimate domain, broader but just as autonomous as the body. Like the body, the homes of people of color in European contexts is denied and summarily infringed upon. These violations and others let, led to the recent Windrush scandal in England, where longtime Caribbean Engl uh, immigrants were stripped of their right to live in England as senior citizens, 
who had been in England without due process. The unthinkable notion that a non-white body could also be a European one has seasonal violent expressions and constant, if more benign, effects for women of color in Europe. It leads to uncertainty whereby race can cost us nationhood and the protections therein. Clementine Ewakolo Burnley came back to the tenuousness of nationhood in the future of non-binary trans and cis women identified activism in communities of color, transnational, local, different. She remarked that at any time her past work could be taken away. She used this to stress the importance of a self-determined identity, one that refuses to let the dominant narrative control how we see ourselves. This was underscored by Anushka Ibaka Valiente, who does not use she, her feminine pronouns to describe themselves. When Burnley stumbled on their pronoun, it was openly discussed in front of the room as two people that care deeply for each other. This was a living blueprint for active learning and conflict resolution within our communities. Burnley said, love is a good entry to talk about topics and go deeper. They then expressed that if love is true, it has to include accountability and action. It is not enough to just say you love someone if you can't respect them, gender them properly, or listen. While dealing with differences within activist circles may be painful, they are not insurmountable. They necessitate the prioritization of people with more at stake and a willingness to act on the behalf of the collective instead of the individual alone. This was evident in how the group talked about their strategies for combating instances of colorism. One, name what is happening. Two, refuse to take the power that is given to you because you are higher on the color hierarchy. Three, actively include those who are excluded. Art was infused throughout the symposium, most notably through how the attendees showed up beautiful and solidly owning their space. The visual art was also stunning and included a series of portraits on Black feminist activism and Black sisterhood by Ife Akinroye-Yeja. I was fortunate enough to stand outside a full room and catch glimpses of a mesmerizing poetic visual performance by Silex called All That You Touch. The delivery in French was synced with the English translation and accompanying visuals on video. The visceral collective memory of how our identities were weaponized against us so early in our lives, in schoolrooms, on playgrounds, in casual passing, left me near tears. How do we fit into systems not designed for us? Is fitting the goal? What do we gain? What do we lose? In For Us, By Us, Brown Girls and the Birth of a Woman of Color Movement in Finland, Yasmin Kaleke deconstructed the implications of the myth of Nordic exceptionalism from racial issues, the historical, systemic, and ongoing forgetting that is required to keep that myth alive. Erasure, not collecting race data, is justified by Nordic colorblindness. This method of post-racial policies to cover any instances of racial inequality is being deployed throughout Europe. What does it mean when national identity is defined by whiteness? 
and you are not. Quote, struggle is rarely safe or pleasurable. Clementine Ewokolo Burnley. Even though that was acknowledged, there was so much focus placed on self-care for many of the presenters. We gain nothing by exhausting ourselves. Some presenters mentioned the importance of demanding compensation for our often in invisibilized labor, claiming happiness and love in the midst of our work, even if that means embracing motherhood or claiming your sexuality or gender identity is seen as a betrayal by your peers or family. Our solidarity and focus must first be to ourselves. The personal is political, but also the personal is our home. To own our own realm, to curate and define in a way that sustains us beyond our daily survival into our calling. In her keynote, Noah So said, we are taught to adapt before we learn to love ourselves. The conference was placed was a place where we returned to the center and got to view that position from different angles and possibility. So also said, the taboo is not that we fight, but that we refuse to harm ourselves in that fight, that we survive that fight. So's keynote address offered some levity, humor, and a challenge for the community to not only examine the boundaries that shape our society, but also the boundaries that we create in order to form coalitions with each other. Is it still necessary to frame spaces as women-centered in 2018? How do we justify that? And are we asking non-binary and trans people to leave some of themselves at the door in order to enter these spaces? Is it just tradition? Or is it based on an epistemology that can be defended within a Black feminist framework? So also broached the need for protected spaces and discussions. With social media giving the world access to formally closed discourses, the intellectual capital of feminists of color is often co-opted and misused. Intersectionality was offered as a prime example of this. People with little understanding of the term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw tend to use it to shore up their radical credentials or even excuse themselves from critique. While so approached this with welcome humor, the tension between the potential for an extended community and the potential for appropriation leave many people with an ambivalent relationship with the exposure of social media. The wealth of thought and experience is so rich that often, unfor unfortunately, it is often used by people without regard to our well-being. So gave some strategies that encourage growth with new ideas while being intentional about who we give access to and why. The conference is too short. I wish desperately that I could be in all three tracks at the same time. I took furious notes trying to capture the magic of being surrounded by so much brilliance. In the end, nothing can capture the joy of being there and having some of my most uncomfortable or exhilarating moments articulated and deconstructed. I commend everyone who took part and look forward to next year, wherever in Europe that may be. And in our final segment, what are we excited about? What are we looking forward to? Get it. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> 
back in Vienna, and I don't know if people know we the queerest uh, okay. uh, capital city in all of Europe. I don't know. I, people don't know it, so I have to I tell think them. There's a reason that they don't. Okay. <laughs> what am I looking forward to? Uh, actually, what I'm looking forward to is much more uh, pop culture. I'm looking forward to uh, Michael Cole. Uh, doing a rom-com musical. That is not her name. Let's try again. I'm sorry, what her name is? Michaela. Michaela Cole. Oh! Oh! Okay. <laughs> Michaela. Mm-hmm. Michaela. I did it with an American accent. See, that's what had happened. Oh, oh Michaela, okay. I love you. Uh-huh. I love you. You the bestest. She don't you love us You my fantasy no girl. Okay. <laughs> so, Michaela Cole mm. is got a Netflix um, show that well, it's a film that is just, it looks amazing because it's like a rom-com and it, they're, they're, they sing at inappropriate times and it's a musical and it just seems fun. I'm sure that, you know, there's some elements. They told the whole story in the trailer because that's what trailers do now. They tell you everything. Uh, well, I'm not but, watching the trailer then. <laughs> there's some elements of some hard knock life. But for, for True, I'm just really happy to see mm. Um, kind of that model coming back to television of like black folks just living their lives and having romance and going to the carnival. I really, <laughs> what are you looking forward to? What are you ready for? Um, well, there are a few things happening in London town this weekend. I'm sure it's just a few. So there's freeze <laughs> happening, which is like the very white, um, contemporary art fair. And then there's one. 54 Contemporary African Art Fair on at the same time at Somerset House, which I enjoy attending every year. And now some people came up with the idea that they were going to do the anti-art fair, unfortunately, at the same time, thereby splitting where my focus can be. I I think it's great. Uh, The anti-art fair is very diverse in the truest form. There are Black people involved, brown people involved. Uh, people of all abilities involved. There's going to be yoga. All kinds of things are going on, right? They really reached out to the communities. They had some good people involved in organizing it to reach those communities. Uh, So, you know, if you're in South London, if you're in Peckham, go check it out. I do think it's a shame that they put it on at the same time as 154 Contemporary African Art Fair. But if you go to that, you will find that a lot of those galleries are white-owned, even if they are supporting African art. Mm. So there's definitely nothing wrong with supporting the anti-art fair. Um, yeah. So, you know, in London, there's always something on. There's always uh, art on. And if you don't want to do any of those things, what I would highly, 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 highly encourage you to go see is a, a exhibition on right now at Autograph ABP at Rivington Place in Shoreditch. Uh, Omar Diop is an African fashion designer turned photographer. He's got an amazing thing on. And on Saturday, he's going to be there to talk about it, where he's taking pictures of himself, recreating historical moments, historical images. You might even find that you learn a little bit because you didn't know some of them. And it's beautiful because he all chocolatey and his lips. Mm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I know that they may seem wrong. But every time I show someone these pictures, granted, most of those people have been gay men, 
they had noticed the juiciness and moisturization of his lips <laughs> in all of the images. It's, it's beautiful. And also just how he retells a story. It's wonderful. So if you have time, do, do yourself a favor. Do a little culture this weekend. Do a little art. Well, that's all for this week. If you would like to keep up with us, you can follow us on Twitter at The Queer Truth. We'd love to hear your thoughts on some of the things we've discussed today, so feel free to get at us. And we still have a Patreon site and can use a little money uh, while we put together this 100th episode for you. Visit our site, patreon.com slash The Queer Truth. Until next time, peace out.